Father, our lives are yours. Help that to truly be so. And I thank you, Lord, for the power of your love that raises us up above our human tendencies. And I'm praying may that power shine through in this moment, in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. This morning I've entitled my message, Peter, Pollyanna, and the Businessman. And I want to begin with a fairly sober uh, paragraph from Great Controversy. He who deliberately stifles his convictions of duty because it interferes with his inclinations will finally lose the power distinguished between truth and error. He who deliberately stifles, it doesn't say wrestle with, a conviction can be a pretty hard thing. But here's the deal. If you're Moses, the conviction may be, go back to Egypt. If you're Abraham, the conviction may be, get out of Ur. If you're Elijah, the conviction may be, appear before Ahab. If you're John the Baptist, the conviction may be, declare the union with Herodias adulterous. It could be as simple as... God saying, I want you to make time for this in your life, be it a family item or a church item or a personal item. And you, in effect, say, no, I've got it. I'm just a little bit too busy. But when we know the voice of God is speaking to us through the Word, through the impress of the Spirit, through providence, sometimes through relationship, when we know in prayer as this conviction deepens, it is of dire consequence that we do not deliberately stifle it. It could be the music you're listening to or the shows you're watching or how much time you're spending doing something that amounts to a cipher, to zero. But the, the amazing thing about an ever-present God is the conversations that can be held between the, this amazing privilege we have to talk to God and His sometimes inconvenient presence when He talks back. To deliberately stifle a conviction of duty because it interferes with inclination will finally render the person with the inability to distinguish between truth and error. I sometimes laugh as I look back at some of my parenting scenes. <laughs> some of the, yeah, our, our Sabbath school lesson was on dysfunction in the family. It was really on finding rest in spite of dysfunction. When you start raising kids, you have to confront some of your own dysfunction. They'll be sure you do 
At least they'll bring it to your attention. And in some of those dialogues with some of those strong-willed kids, they'd say some of the weirdest things. Like, Dad, I agree with you on everything except this. Okay. Just turns out that this is the subject matter of the moment. So I guess that's pretty convenient. But when God talks and we say, sorry, I'm not listening, we run the risk of someone else talking to us. So cultivating that intimate moment with God and learning to actually talk with God, it's all predicated on the idea that I'll give it all to God. If, if, if I haven't started the relationship on the concept of full surrender, I don't know how I ever expect I'm, I'm, I'm going to find that intimacy that I'm talking about. But God does talk. And that's the Abraham journey that's my journey and your journey. She goes on to say, the understanding becomes darkened, the conscience callous, the heart hardened, and the soul is separated from God. I'd like for you to think Judas for a moment. You know, I'd like for you to think rich young ruler. It's all compacted there. But we have Jesus who loves these people and they love him back, but they love themselves more which means his voice must be subjugated to their voice. Where the message of divine truth is spurned or slighted, there the church will be enshrouded in darkness and love grow cold and estrangement and dissension enter. Church members center their interests and their energies in worldly pursuits and sinners become hardened in their impenitence. Well, that's probably where the rubber meets the road because it's not so much that you're going to go against one of the 28 fundamental beliefs You've already signed on to those. The real problem is going to be when God says, you know, that habit is what the worldlings do. It's not what my children do. And I'd like for you to give it up. That's where conscience is inconvenient. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. One body, two different men. I want to look for a moment at a man called Peter. There is a video that I would probably recommend. I don't do that very often. And actually in today's message I'll talk about some cinematography more than usual but there is a video with the name of a man called Peter. It's about the United States Chaplain Senate, Peter Marshall. And uh, he became famous for his prayers uh, before the Senate. And I would encourage you to consider putting it on your family fair, if anything else of, of film nature is a part of that. If not, you might read the book. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have found their way into the temple. They've healed a man. And as they go into the temple, they are followed by the crowds, which is very unnerving. Getting rid of Jesus did not get rid of Jesus. 
And it appears that his followers are as bold and beautiful as he was. Verse 1, chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. And being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead... And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. So let's make sure we understand their crime. Their crime was healing a man and in the shadow of the experience exercising that credibility to give a different narrative. Now we already know that this system has become corrupted by self-serving. But now we're going to watch as we see liberty of conscience and communication threatened. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them, Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, this is where their calculus goes very much awry. And the commentary from Acts of the Apostles regarding this moment is very, very interesting. In that very room, the author writes in Acts of the Apostles, and before some of those very men, Peter had shamefully denied his Lord. All right, so imagine you're Peter. I've been here. This came distinctly to his mind as he appeared for his own trial. Now he had an opportunity of redeeming his cowardice. I don't want those words attached to my name, but they were attached to Peter's name. And how many times between denying Jesus and the restoration by Jesus of Peter, which is a beautiful story, how many times did the devil, the accuser of the brethren, throw that word into Peter's head? Coward, 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 coward. And Peter, as human as you and I, finds himself remembering but he's not the only one who remembered those present who remembered the part that Peter had acted at the trial of his master flattered themselves that he could now be intimidated by the threat of imprisonment and death but since his fall he had been can you fill in the blank converted something's different Beautifully different. He was no longer proud and boastful. May God save us in our insecurity from being proud and boastful. May the security of Christ create a divine humility, nobility, and dignity. It's the only thing that can. He was no longer proud and boastful, but he was modest and self-distrustful. Now, I want those two phrases to hang in your head 
because the next few verses we're going to read must be modest and self-distrustful. Desire of Ages says that the first lesson every Christian must learn is the lesson of self-distrust. In other words, I'm depending on Jesus. It's not my great talents or my great skill or my great experience or my great education or my great giftedness. Modest and self-distrustful. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and by the help of this power, he was resolved, so he made up his mind, to remove the stain of his apostasy by honoring the name he had once disowned. It's kind of sad to even say it. So when they put them in the center, verse 7, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and now everybody's going to get a sense something's different. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as if to how this man had been made well, in other words, if no good deed goes unpunished, and this trial is about that guy who used to beg, who's standing in the hinterlands listening right now, if such were the case. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man became well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Now, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have to be modest and self-distrustful. But if you think being modest and self-distrustful renders you weak and spineless, read the story again, for indeed the exact opposite is true. And so it must be modest and self-distrustful when you put yourself at the tip of the spear to receive the venom. And as I look at the narrative, I must ask myself, did he have to go so far as to say that it is by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified? Are these just fighting words? Are they actually spirit-born words of conviction to give them one more chance on the road to the stoning of Stephen and the sealing off of their salvation, as in locked out of heaven, not anchored in? He is the stone, verse 11, which was rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven whereby, given among men whereby we must be saved. And they all had another moment where the conviction was on them and it was either stifling time or stand-up time. Now, we have the commentary in verse 13. 
We just read the story. Now, as they observe the confidence of Peter, so modesty and self-distrust does not mean an absence of confidence. A false humility is what the scribes and the Pharisees had. They did not speak with authority. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke in antithesis or in oppositeness of, of that methodology. Theirs was a false humility that was vacillating, that went back and forth. Christ was a true humility that did not. He looks, potentially by modern day sentiments, to be the arrogant one, except for this one thing. Confidence is a function of modesty and self-distrustfulness. It is not automatically a symptom of arrogance. Now, of course, the two can be confused, and the individuals who suspect they have one might have the other. But it is interesting that they observed the confidence of Peter and John and they understood, well, they didn't really, did they? This version says they understood that they were uneducated and untrained, which was completely not true. And they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with somebody. <laughs> there must be very few more beautiful testimonies than this one. For by beholding, they had become changed. And in that moment when Peter's heart was broken and he said, I guess I didn't know myself. And he entered into a posture of repentance something changed and all of a sudden he saw the greatness of the love of Jesus on Calvary and he saw the kindness of Jesus in confronting him the night before Calvary and he saw the look of Jesus when he was denying him in the courtyard and something was different in Peter Peter was now a beautiful replication in most respects not all because he's confronted later on by Paul about his Judaizing, but in so many respects, Peter was a replication of Jesus, and everybody got it. The devil is in the details of stifling, deliberately stifling conviction. Let me talk to the preachers for just a minute. <laughs> And of course, all the parents and teachers and administrators and everybody else can listen in. If you don't love your people, and if you think it's your job to create your own success, and you tag along on the coattails of a modern society that prizes peace above the pursuit of truth, Woe be unto you, for the Bible declares that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Peter actually now, instead of admiring these men for the positions they held, and were hoping for similar positions in the kingdom of Jesus, now loves these men enough that even though they took the life of his best friend, it is not just that they took it, they made it as miserably taken as it could be made. The mockery, the scorn... 
Peter actually, in humility of person, in modesty and self-distrustfulness, now knows what he must do, and he must recapture the high ground, not so much for his own name, although this was his opportunity to redeem his cowardice. It is now Peter who is called to set in motion the continuation of that which Jesus left behind. And seeing the man who had been standing with him, they had nothing to say in reply. So here's how it works. You enter into a relationship with God, and the triune God of the universe stoops in gladness to enter into that relationship with you. He laid down his very life. He put, the, uh, he put the universe as it were and his plans at some level for expansion. Uh, for all you physicists listening today, I know that it's still rolling out, we say, and I don't doubt it. But at some level, he turns all of the energies or much of the energies of the universe into the the malicious contempt and, and the insidious attack on his own person. And he will reveal that in the deliverance of man taken advantage of. And so here we have the chance to bow in the presence of the God who creates with such detailed intricacy that every generation can discover more and more about the awesomeness of this creator. And yet God is willing to give the, his undivided attention in his Ability to be omnipresent to me, to you. I mean, the awesomeness of this opportunity to actually talk with God. But the problem is, at least one of the larger, it appears to me, is that we don't really reflect enough on the fact that he spoke and it existed. And he came and he recovered for us that which we had given away. There's something about our lives as well endowed with opportunity and money and, and connections that we have, that for some reason, it, it, it's just such a big battle for us, just like it was for them leaving Egypt, to actually believe that God is that present and God is that powerful and God is that interested. But friends, He is. He is. So what, what, what must the heart of God be like when the communion points are sporadic or non-existent? I mean, you're here today, and that's good. God loves you. He called you. This is a good place to be. But he's looking for so much more. And for Peter, his own ambition continued to, to cloud the, the deliberate statements of Jesus, the messaging of Christ, that it wasn't really going to be like they thought. But eventually, in personal crisis, uh, the dam breaks open, and that which was undiscussable before is discussable now, and that is that along the way some deliberate stifling had gone on in the heart of Peter. That, that stuff, Jesus, about going to Jerusalem and suffering, <laughs> just oh, keep that to yourself. And while he was directly rebuked for that, he never fully surrendered it. I want to tell you some very, very good news. That in the great controversy, God wins. Now I need to tell you the bad news. 
The bad news is the controversy is going on in every family listening to me here today and every human heart. And the battle is a little scary at times. <laughs> and the devil is right there to take everything that you're prompted to do by the Spirit and nudged by your guardian angel to do and, and that all those things brought back to your mind, the devil is right there to suggest, well, not that. But I want to tell you something. In spite of the ups and the downs, in spite of the positives and the negatives, in spite of my own challenges and those of some of the people I work with, whether they hold direct influence over me or they're part of this flock, God is still winning. And when he gives you a conviction, there's a reason. Because it's the road to growth and victory and usually, eventually, even happiness. So when you stifle a conviction, it's as if you're saying, the triune creator God of the universe who knows me genetically, he knows me historically, he knows me in the future, this God doesn't know enough to chart the best course for me, which ends up not only with the best life on earth, but heavenly assurance. How was it that these men were burned in the stake? They had heavenly assurance. Jesus was dearer to them than life. How does that happen? Well, it happens when that deliberate conviction is followed. So if you're John Tyndale and you've got to publish the Bible in the English language, you do it. If it means the loss of home, if it means exile in France, if it means the loss of fortune, whatever it means, it means you do it. Now, the important thing is that you really are in a relationship with God because the voices that compete for our attention are a little bit fierce. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we know there's moments when when, you know, it's like the lady who decided to quit eating donuts. It's, it's a story you've all heard, but it's worth telling, I think. And every day she drives by the donut shop and she says, you know, I'm not going to get a donut today. Don't, donuts aren't bad. Don't take, I mean, you shouldn't eat too many of them, I don't think, but you get to decide. But every day she drives by the donut shop and on one day she's feeling just a little bit weak and she says, Lord, if there's a parking space in front of the donut shop, I'll take that as a sign to stop and get a donut. <laughs> now, I don't want to be trivial, but I would like to highlight a little humanity. So she's on her way to work. She drives by the donut shop and there are no parking spaces. So she goes around the block and tries one more time. That's the point. Do we all get it? Can we be honest with ourselves? Can anybody else be honest with you? I want to tell you, I have no greater treasure in my life than the dearness of my closest relationship, starting with Colleen, and then working its way out through other family members and friends who love me enough to pray for me and love me enough to respectfully, as they would want done to them, talk to me 
I need the prayers of those I love while wandering over life's rugged way. And you do too. But if I am willing to let the Lord speak a conviction to me, you need to be certain on the other side of that conviction, there's some kind of view of who God is and maybe who you are and maybe even a little bit of what the future can hold that you can't see where you are right now. When they came up to the Red Sea and God and Moses cries out to God, the byline of Moses' cry must have been, God, what'd you do it this way for? And God says, why are you crying out to me? The not so subtly inferred statement is that I didn't bring you this far to leave you. When I think about Peter in his future, poor Peter, the names of these men should be on the foundations of the city because we get to learn on their dime. It's Peter who when those important people from the church come, that Paul tells us in Antioch that Peter actually, after having been the one to, to enunciate about the vision on the roof and the engagements with Cornelius, Peter actually goes backwards and starts acting like he doesn't want to associate with those people. He gets confronted by Peter in front of the whole church. Whoa, that's some pretty rugged church going. I would hope it was a smaller home type church. Dear Peter, I've said almost nothing about the Gospels in Peter, and I'm not going to. But this blessed man who tradition tells us when it was time to go, probably in the late 60s AD, that he considers it too great an honor to be crucified right side up and he asked to be crucified upside down. Biblical fact, no. Tradition, yes. And yet, probably so. Hinted at Peter. How do you go from being the man who cusses his way out of an uncomfortable situation to being the man who in effect says he's still alive, he's still powerful, and he was resurrected. In effect, what Peter was saying is because the 70-week prophecy, the 490 years of probation for Judaism wasn't done, in effect, Peter was giving a gospel invitation. He pays some pretty high prices for it. When I was a young pastor, I ran into a lady named Alice Danford at Walmart. I want to tell you something. I need you to know how much I love this church. And it's not just the village church. I need you to know how much I love this Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, I, it wasn't it's something that's definitely grown on me. I mean, uh, when I was a student at Andrews University, I can remember I had a friend whose father was on a conference committee in a different conference, not Michigan. And I can remember on one Sabbath afternoon, somehow we got off on a discussion of the church, and it was clear to me, this guy had a lot of angst. 
And it became very clear to me as a uh, maturing adult, I understand what happened. His father went to the conference committee meetings. Some things didn't go the way he wanted. He came home and he talked about things in front of his kids he never should have talked about. Parents, do you understand? These little sponges, they don't have the, the breadth and the readiness. And, and so I can remember defending to this friend of mine this blessed church which had brought new life to me. The saints, such wonderful people. The workers, such wonderful people. Naive 27-year-old young preacher. I'm not a second career preacher. And you've heard me say before, and I'm chagrined to say it again, I didn't want to be a preacher, but I couldn't, I wasn't going to keep stifling the conviction because I don't want to lose my way and have self-deception. Ron Kelly 101 cooked up for me by Lucifer himself, who's anxious to help me run the show on my own with God. Thank you, no thank you. I surrendered to that conviction. But I was still pretty wet behind the ears. I didn't grow up in an Adventist home. And I run into this lady in Walmart and she says to me, you know, Pastor Kelly, I'll never use my substance or my influence, I don't remember the exact words, to try to redirect your ministry. Well, I had never thought of such a thing in all my life. <laughs> Rich people in the church that would throw their weight around. No. Oh, this is a good lady. And you know, I can tell you I have never known one genuinely well-off person in any of my congregations who has ever done such. And it's a beautiful testimony. We have a wonderful church. Oh, come on. We have a wonderful church. But it doesn't mean we don't have little moments. It doesn't mean we don't occasionally have challenges. We do. I went to the next church. I didn't know who was rich and who wasn't rich. I don't try to find out. And you need to know, I don't go ask rich people for money. I just don't do it. Now, if you're an administrator or a philanthropist, that's your job. Go ahead and do it. But as a pastor, I can't do it. Because at some level, I can't be beholden to anybody and rightly do my job. And one of these rich people... I've had the most fierce conversations with of probably any parishioner I've ever had, but it was good for him and it was good for me. Up on the roof, replacing all those shingles, he says to me, what would it take to get these sermons on the radio? I said, well, it'd take money. I didn't know he had money. The next board meeting I go to, there's money in a fund, a lot of money. And lots more money came in over the years. God's people, when they follow their convictions, are exceptionally sacrificial and generous. The love of Jesus in the heart of a man or a woman makes him like Jesus, the most generous of all people to walk the face of the earth. I want to tell you that love puts the best construct on somebody else's actions. I, uh, I'd like to recommend something to you. I don't have my phone on me, but I signed up for this uh, daily reading from the Testimonies. And yesterday, you know, at 11 o'clock, 
I get this uh, invitation to listen to a segment of the testimonies. And some days I can and some days I can't. But I saw in the beginning that exact quote. Love puts the most favorable construct on somebody else's actions. You know, this is hard to do. But when you don't do it, you're not living like Jesus who saw everybody in the potential of what they could be. This is who we are. Peter did not look into the eyes of these individuals who could hold tremendous power over him with evil in his heart, with resentment. But he looked at them through the eyes of love. All right, so we've done Peter and we've done the businessman. How about if we do Pollyanna now? Could we do that? I'm going to tell you of at least four films. I keep two on my computer. I watch little bits of them whenever I need to. The one is the 1990, uh, not one, 1959 black and white version of Martin Luther. I've told you this. Friends, I would highly recommend that every single one of you that has any interest at all actually invest the money Get the file, keep it on your computer, and watch it every once in a while. Another would be a man called Peter. But the two I keep on my computer are the 2006 version of Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce and the 1959 version of Martin Luther. And I know where certain spots are that I just need to go watch again. Well, I'm not recommending Pollyanna on that level, but I have seen the film. And they all hold a common narrative, which about 50 or 60 years ago, of course, 2006 isn't that long ago, was a pretty prominent, commonly held belief that you've got to live according to the convictions of your heart. Now, little Pollyanna comes as an orphan, to Aunt Polly's house, Polly Harrington, who owns everything in the city of Harrington. The only problem is skipping over large amounts of the story is that the orphanage is run down and most of the city thinks it should be replaced, but not Aunt Polly. Aunt Polly has kind of a shriveled up little heart. It's evidence in the beginning of the, of the film where little orphan Polly has to live up in the attic of this great big beautiful mansion. But eventually, if you've seen the film, you know that she begins winning the hearts of the people. The problem is, is that when the mayor and the other businessmen all really feel kind of stifled by Aunt Polly's ownership of everything, and they desire to hold a bazaar, which is not something we believe is the way to raise money, but it was the narrative of the film, the concern is, is that because of the retributive abilities of Aunt Polly, nobody will come. But she has a former... Uh, she has a former special friend who's a physician who appears to be the only person in the whole storyline that will confront her. And he does. And then he goes to try to put an advertisement in the newspaper and they tell him it's too full, which is code language for if I put this advertisement in against Polly Harrington, I could have my head on the chopping block. Well, you know, if you've seen the film Mr. Pendergast, uh, the hermit, scientist. He's got a little gumption inside of him, and it's not long until the discussion of why this bazaar isn't going to work is going on, and then the discussion comes down to Mrs. Harrington owning everything, and Pollyanna comes along and wonders what's the discussion, and it's the bazaar, and it's Aunt Polly, and she says, uh, is this because of Aunt Polly? And 
the lady Nancy says yes. And then Pollyanna, while they're in this big discussion, says, but nobody owns the church. And Nancy looks at her and says, what did you say? Well, nobody owns the church. Of course, the preacher is an interesting personality who himself is on the potentially abusive side in the pulpit. And we don't really know it, but moments later, Polly has a note in her pocket to deliver to the preacher who's coming from her aunt, Polly. And she comes upon this man who's preaching. She offers to listen in and be his practice session. No, she asks him if he likes ministry. And he says, well, why do you ask that? Of course, her dad was a preacher. They get into an interesting conversation. And the, the byline of nobody owns the church because these people went to ask the preacher if he would give support to it. And he doesn't want to get in the middle of it. He says, no. And when Polly walks away, little positive Polly, she has a note in her hand for the preacher. And the note is from her aunt who controls everything. And it says, Dear Reverend, I've taken the liberty of jotting down a few thoughts and some texts from Matthew, which I thought you might want to use in your sermon. And he says to himself, staring off into the distance, What have I done? What have I done? And then he walks through the house where Mrs. Ford is and she looks at him because he's got, this, he's got this look in his face. He's raptured with a new thought. And she says, dear, are you all right? And he walks by and he says, nobody owns a church. No one. Listen, we don't always get it exactly right, do we? If you read your Sabbath school lesson, it doesn't always go the way we think. But we ought to love each other enough to live by those inconvenient things that happen in a relationship with God. And if he deepens a conviction in your heart, the happiest path is acting on it. And it's superbly frightening at times. Because there are things that are on the table that could be very costly and pricely, pricey. But you know how you grow faith? You put one foot in front of the other. And eventually, you look back and realize like Abraham I couldn't see where this was going to take me. I had to trust God that he wouldn't take me anywhere that wasn't good for me or good for somebody else. Friends, as your pastor and preachers as other people's pastors and parents as pastors of your little flocks and employees as fellow stewards of relationships, be the most kind and beautiful people on the face of the planet. <laughs> but please, don't stifle the clearly understood. And if you're in doubt, find somebody you trust to see if your head's on straight. But do not stifle the clarity 
and delivering power of something as rare and freedom-giving as a conviction from God. In humility, in modesty and self-distrustfulness, carry it out. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. But don't give the devil an opportunity to whisper sweet nothings in your ear that sound so much better than what God's asking you to do. We've lived in a very interesting age but we're going to have to make sure that we don't write our own writ of rejection for our heavenly inheritance by choosing the path of least resistance. May God help us. He does. He will. And in eternity and even before we'll have some fantastic stories to tell. May God help us. But make sure you live by the word of God and in that relationship, whatever he says to do, do it. And may the Lord give us that joy of conscious innocence that whether it's appreciated or unappreciated, we are free in Christ. If you're not on the right track, some friend will tell you if you're good enough to have good enough friends, if you're loved enough. We're living in some strange days. Ephesians chapter 6. We do need to be wearing the armor of Christ. And may God help us. God be with you.